We're looking again this morning at 2 Corinthians. I mentioned last week that the text we were looking at then, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, was something of, a, of an aside about where we are to locate glory. And now, in our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21, the Apostle Paul picks up some of the themes he'd been discussing earlier in the letter. In particular, he re-engages with the criticisms his opponents have leveled against him. And he presents again a defense of who he is and what his ministry looks like. Paul has to explain why his way of life looks so different from his opponents, those he calls peddlers of God's word, those who claim to in fact be superior to him. And here he'll do it by pointing to the relationship between love for God and love for our neighbors. So then, mind, please hear from our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is all known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. So Paul here is continuing to respond to some of the accusations of those who have opposed his ministry. We see a reference to them in verse 12. And his central point against his opponents, his central point that he says is evidence for the validity of his ministry and also the invalidity of their ministry, is that they have severed the relationship between love of God and love of neighbor. And as a result, they have been left with neither. They've separated love towards God from love towards neighbor, and as a result, they now have neither one. As a result, all that remains is their love for themselves. Let's look at it a little bit closer. Paul's dealing particularly with the issue that his opponents seem to be commending themselves based on their personal relationship with God, their spiritual status. They commend themselves for being spiritual based on their love for and their experience of God, and they say that Paul does not match them in this area. Commentator Paul Barnett points out that we can gather from verses 12 and 13 that the Apostle Paul's opponents 
were apparently trying to legitimate their own, own calling and the superiority of their own apostleship by appealing to their elevated relationship with God, their ecstatic states and their visions. While, in their view, Paul spent so much of his time on other things. In other words, they were the superior apostles because they were focused on their direct relationship with God, while Paul was distracted with his ministry and his work for other people. But the Apostle Paul points out that his opponents have severed their love for God from their love for the Corinthians, in this case their neighbors. For Paul, both his love for God and his love for his neighbors are shaped by the same thing. It's the love of Christ that controls him, he says in verse 14. But his opponents, he points out, are different. His opponents, we learn in verse 12, are controlled by their need to commend themselves and to boast. In other words, Paul is pointing out that by pursuing a supposed love of God that was divorced from, or that even looked down on service and ministry and love towards the Corinthians, his opponents had not ascended to a higher spiritual plane, but had actually collapsed into a self-love of boasting and self-commendation. The religion, at the end of the day, was about them, not about God or other people. And this is a problem we're familiar with, isn't it? We see it in the Old Testament prophets who denounced Israel for their trust and sacrifices while they also mistreated the poor and the powerless. We see it in the ministry of Jesus as he speaks against the Pharisees who used traditions, traditions that were supposed to honor God in their minds in order to prevent the caring for of other people. We see it in the Apostle Paul as he describes his life before he met the risen Lord, as a man consumed by a religious zeal that caused him to abuse and imprison the people of God. It's the plot of far too many stories in history, on the news, in books or on screens, of the self-proclaimed religious man who supposedly devotes his life to the love of God, but fails to love the people around him. What all these things point out to us is that real and true love for God cannot be severed from a love for our neighbors, from a love for other human beings who bear God's image. When we try to pursue a love of God without loving our neighbors, that supposed love of God is quickly twisted, pulled downward by the gravity of our love of self. And soon, what was supposed to be the goal now becomes a means to a different end. And so we use our religious deeds to promote ourselves, to assure ourselves, to excuse ourselves. We use God for our own purposes. Our lives might be filled with religious practices that look God-centered, but really they're all about us. They're about our good. Attempts at love for God, severed from love for our neighbors, are pulled down and destroyed, consumed in the end by our love for ourselves. And that's what's being done by Paul's opponents. So if you see the flaws of trying to love God without loving our neighbors, but also, while it isn't Paul's focus, it's worth pointing out that we can do the reverse as well. We can try to love our neighbors without loving God. We can try to live for other people, but in a way that's disconnected from our love for God. And that too, we see, if we look closely, also quickly collapses under the pull of love of self. C.S. Lewis addresses this phenomenon in his book, The Four Loves. 
within his discussion of affection, he speaks about gift love that becomes twisted in on itself. He gives an example, writing, I am thinking of Mrs. Fidget, who died a few months ago. It is really astonishing how her family have brightened up. The drawn look has gone from her husband's face. He begins to be able to laugh. The younger boy, whom I had always thought an embittered, peevish little creature, turns out to be quite human. The elder, who was hardly ever at home except when he was in bed, is nearly always there now and has begun to reorganize the garden. The girl, who was always supposed to be delicate, though I never found out exactly what the trouble was, now has the riding lessons which were out of the question, dances all night and plays any amount of tennis. Even the dog, who was never allowed out except on a lead, is now a well-known member of the lamppost club in their road. Mrs. Fidget very often said that she lived for her family. And it was not untrue. Everyone in the neighborhood knew it. She lives for her family, they said. What a wife and mother. There was always a hot lunch for anyone who was at home and always a hot meal at night, even in midsummer. They implored her not to provide this. They protested almost with tears in their eyes and with truth that they liked cold meals. It made no difference. She was living for her family. She always sat up to welcome you home if you were out late at night. Two or three in the morning, it made no odds. You would always find the frail, pale, weary face awaiting you, like a silent accusation. Which meant, of course, that you couldn't with any decency go out very often. And then her care for their health. She bore the whole burden of that daughter's delicacy alone. The girl was to have no worries, no responsibilities for her own health, only loving care, caresses, special foods, horrible tonic wines, and breakfast in bed. For Mrs. Fidget, as she often said, would work her fingers to the bone for her family. And they couldn't stop her. Nor could they, being decent people, quite sit still and watch her do it. They had to help. Indeed, they were always having to help. That is, they did things for her to help her do things for them which they didn't want done. The vicar says that Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What's quite certain is that her family are. Now, what's Lewis's point here? Well, most of us have seen this somewhere, haven't we? Love for others that, as Lewis explains, is more about the one doing the loving than it is about those who are supposedly being loved. Love that seems to mean well, but that in the end is more about itself than other people. It's an odd thing to see. It's an even more odd thing to try to confront. But as Lewis points out, it happens. And it happens easily. Love for others all by itself can easily be pulled and twisted to serve the love of self. Soon our deeds of love for others become really about us. Whether they're good works of charity, our kind and giving disposition towards others, or how we serve our family. Love for others on its own easily collapses under the pull of love of self and becomes self-centered. And so we see here that by themselves, severed from one another, love for God on the one hand and love for neighbor on the other cannot actually stand up on their own. Pursued by themselves, they quickly become twisted by the pull of our love of ourselves. Our love of God becomes self-righteousness. Our love of neighbor becomes self-importance and a need to be needed. 
what then are we to do? If in practice we see that each of these pursuits on their own collapses into love of self, how are we to do what God has called us to? What we see here in Paul, in our text, is that while in day-to-day life, while in those moments when we're deciding how to spend our time or our energy, they often seem to be in conflict, in truth, the love of God and the love of neighbor are actually inseparable from each other. What we see, let me say that once more, is that while they often might seem in our day-to-day lives to be in conflict, our calling to love God and our calling to love our neighbor are actually inseparable. They need each other. It's only together that they can stand against our love for ourselves. In other words, you can't have one without the other. You can break that down a little bit. We've said that our pursuit of loving God and loving our neighbor often seem to be in conflict, and that's actually there in our text. It comes out in verse 13. Paul writes, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. In other words, Paul sees that the call to love God and his call to love the Corinthians seem to require different things from him, even opposite things at times. He cannot be in an ecstatic state or having a spiritual vision or focused exclusively on God while also interacting with and ministering well to the Corinthians. And if he's ministering well to them, he cannot be focused only and exclusively on God. The two appear to be in competition in Paul's day-to-day life in how he divides up his time and his energy. But while there is a tension between them, while they both press him in different directions, Paul is also emphatic that they're not working against each other, but actually for each other. And I think we see this in other areas of our lives as well, don't we? Most of us have callings that appear to be in conflict at times, but that are really inseparable from each other. Parenthood gives a couple of good illustrations. And so consider a parent who goes to work. I leave my children to go to work most mornings. Often it makes them sad. My two-and-a-half-year-old is especially uh, uh, clingy and affectionate right now, and so some mornings I'll tell her I have to go, and she will grab onto my leg and say something like, But, Daddy, I love you. Even so, I tell her I have to go, even though I love her too. And I have to go not because I don't love her as much as she loves me, but I have to go in part for her own sake. I work in large part to provide for her and the rest of our family. If I do not go to work, if I were to quit my job so I could stay home with her, I would soon not be able to feed or house or clothe her. Well, in the moment, my callings to work and to parent might appear to be in conflict. They're actually inseparable from each other if I'm to do them well. If I focus on work to the exclusion of my relationship with my children, then my job is really becoming all about me about my success and not other people. And if I quit my job to be with my wife and kids all the time, that might look more loving at the moment, but it would not actually be best for my children. They need me to work to provide for them. And so these callings that often look and feel in conflict, well, they might appear to have some tension, and they do have some tension. That tension actually helps hold them together rather than driving them apart. The same is actually true for parents who stay at home. Not long ago, my wife showed me an article by Renan Giles, uh, which was shared with her uh, by a friend, which was titled, The Dishes Can Wait and Other Lies. 
It was about how mothers of young children are often told not to worry about housework and just to enjoy being with their young children. The lines the author had heard again and again were, they're only young ones, the dishes can wait, enjoy every moment. And while the author admitted that there were some good impulses behind those lines, one can run the risk of putting housework above their relationship with their children. The advice she felt was still misleading. Because it presented two callings as if they were in opposition when really they needed each other. And so to make this point in a humorous way, she imagines what her home and what her children's lives would look like if she really followed this advice completely, if she left things as they were. She imagines while the dishes are waiting, the floor is getting covered in sticky grime. While the floor is waiting, the bathroom sink is collecting toothpaste. While that toothpaste is waiting, that laundry is growing in elevation. But at least you got to play an extra round of hide-and-seek with your kids. Unfortunately, one of them tripped over the waiting vacuum and broke his arm. You make a makeshift sling out of the dirty underwear on the living room floor. And when you find yourself weary at the end of a long day, you don't have to walk all the way to your bedroom. You can curl up right there in a pillow made of dog fur, stickers, and other miscellaneous, floss them and jet them. Now, what is Giles' point? She's saying that while the two callings of housework and child-rearing are certainly in tension, while they might feel on a daily basis as if they're in conflict or competition with each other, in fact, they're not really opposed. And far from it, they're actually inseparable from each other. Of course, it's true that a parent can make a clean house an end in itself, and so they can fall short in their relationship with their children. But it's also true that to skew housework would not be loving for one's children either. The two callings give each other meaning, purpose, and they help them from collapsing into selfishness. It's possible to pursue a clean house for our sake. It's possible to shrug off housework and just spend time with our children for our own enjoyment. But if we're to truly love our children well, we need to do the difficult work of trying to pursue both at the same time. It's not easy, but it's what love looks like. And so it is with our calling to love God and to love our neighbor. A while back, Pastor Rayburn pointed me to a helpful quote by John Duncan that captures this idea of this tension. Now, I checked on our church website, and Pastor Rayburn did use this quote in a sermon 15 years ago, and I know that memories here can be very good, and so please forgive me ahead of time for the repetition. But Duncan put it like this. He said, If the stones of an arch were to become animated and speak, the stones on the right-hand side would say, right-hand pressure is right pressure. And the stones on the left hand would say, left-hand pressure is right pressure. But by pressing in opposite directions, they keep up the keystone of the arch. Now, Duncan was speaking of antinomies when he said this, of biblical truths that appear to our minds to be in contradiction, but in reality are not. But the same illustration of the arch could also be used for our callings from God in our lives. An arch works. It holds up the central keystone because each side of the arch pushes in the opposite direction. It's the tension itself of each side, the pressure from both sides of the arch pushing against each other that hold up the keystone. If all the stones were to push right, the arch would collapse. If all the stones push left, the stones would collapse. But when they're pressing in opposite directions, intention, not contradiction, that is when they can actually stand. That is when they hold up the keystone. 
In the day-to-day course of our life, our call to love God and our call to love our neighbor can often feel like they're in opposition, like we're being pulled in different directions. The needs of others may pull us away from prayer or Bible reading or the peace of quiet contemplation. The demands of God may keep us from a constant devotion to others. But in fact, the two callings need each other. The two callings need each other to hold up the Christian life. We said earlier, attempts to love God and attempts to love neighbors when severed from each other and isolated by themselves soon collapse under the gravity of our pull of love of self. They become about us. What we see here in Paul is that when these two callings, these two loves, are put together, our lives can stand upright. Love for God must be expressed in love for neighbor, and love of neighbor must be motivated by the love of God. It's only then, when these two callings, these two pressures are combined, that we can stand up and resist the constant tug of our hearts to fall back into the love of self. What then should this look like in our lives? Take a moment to look at each side of the arch and to consider how it's shaped by the other. First, is our love of our neighbors motivated by our love for God? We've already talked about what our attempts to love other people look like if they're severed from love of God. We've already considered how they become twisted and collapse in on themselves. Where do we see that pattern in our lives? Where do we see our love for others twisting into a love of ourselves? Maybe as Lewis described, it's in parenting or being a spouse. Or maybe it's in how you relate to someone else. A parent, a friend, someone who lives close by, a fellow church member or someone you serve in a ministry, someone that you're helping in some way. Are those deeds in your life severed from your relationship to God? Do you think of them in separate categories? Paul calls us here to see those relationships in a larger context, to see them in the context of our relationship with God. And it's only when those relationships are seen in our mind as being primarily about God that we can keep them from being primarily about us. The way to avoid parenting that turns your kids into trophies or other forms of self-validation is to see your ultimate goal as raising disciples for Christ's kingdom. The best way to be a good friend is to see your friendship as something there to help you and the other person grow closer to God. You can think of it this way. If your friend begins to do something that's foolish or sinful or bad for them or others, then if your friendship is not founded on your love for God, you'll be tempted to do a self-centered cost-benefit analysis about whether you should really confront them. You'll ask, what might this cost me? What's the best outcome for me? What's the worst outcome for me? But if your friendship is primarily about God, you will confront them lovingly when they begin to make foolish or sinful choices. And that will make you a better friend to them, not a worse one. The best way to avoid treating the people you serve or minister to like little projects, like depersonalized boxes you need to check off, is to see your relationship in terms of your love for God. How does God see those people? How does God want you to interact with them? They bear God's image. Does your thinking about them reflect that? Or are you really using them to feel better about yourself? To truly love others... Our love for our neighbor must be built on our love for God. 
And so it was with Paul. That was why he could say difficult things to the Corinthians in both of his letters to them. Because even when he knew it would come back and hurt him, he would do it anyway. Because his ministry to them was not about him, it was about God. By combining his love for them with his love for God, he withstood the pull of twisting that relationship into a love of self. His opponents did not. So that's the first question we need to ask. Is our love for others motivated by our love for God? But the second we need to ask is, is our love for God driving us out to love others? And this is the point that Paul is focusing on in our passage. He concludes that because of his union with Christ, who has died and risen again, so he too has died to his old way of life, his way of life that included living for himself. And now he lives for Christ. But what does that look like? In verses 18 through 20, he explains. It means that he joins the ministry of his Lord. It means that he imitates the ministry of his God. Paul looks at God, he looks at Christ, and what he sees is a God who is fully devoted to the work of reconciling the world to himself. Paul sees a God who left the safety of heaven to go out into a hostile world, even to die on a cross and then be raised, all because of his desire to reconcile the world to himself. And Paul decides he must follow God's example and be part of that work. He must look to Christ and follow in his footprints. And so Paul, too, has chosen to live a life where he leaves the safety of his former life, going out into a hostile world in order to die to himself, and maybe even eventually literally die, in the work of reconciling the world to God. Paul sees that this is how God, the God he loves relates to the world, and Paul wants to be like him and do the same. Paul sees the work of God in Christ to reconcile the world to himself, and Paul jumps into the midst of that work. If God loves Paul's neighbors so much, if he desires to be reconciled with them so much, then if Paul really loves God, how could he not jump into service, into being part of making that happen? we can see this pattern of how love works in other areas of our life. When we love something, we want others to love it too. When something's been a tremendous benefit to us, we want others to benefit from it as well. It's part of the nature of love. And so, when we fall in love, we think the object of our affection is amazing, but we don't want to just think it ourselves. We want everyone else to see it and think so as well. We extol the virtues of the one we love to friends and families and sometimes anyone who will listen. And if anyone told us they didn't like that person, we would try to convince them otherwise. That's the nature of love. But we also do the same thing with other things. We do it even with fairly mundane things that we appreciate. A diet that's working for us lately, a book we're really enjoying, a movie that we just saw, a TV show that we've been binge-watching this summer. When we really like something... We want others to as well. We tell them about it. We try to win them over to it. Love never stays private. It always wants to direct others to the object of its affection. and wants others to, in some sense, recognize and be reconciled to the thing that we love. So do we see that pattern in our relationship with God? Do we see that with our faith in Christ? Now, it's easy to just hammer the guilt note on this subject, but that's not really my intention. 
Most of us know that we should be going out and sharing our faith more. But the question here is about what our struggle to do that reveals. It reveals that we need a clearer picture of God, both of who he is and how he feels about the world. So first we need a clearer picture of who God is to us. How do you tend to view God? Do you tend to see him as distant, exacting, maybe mildly disappointed? Is he looking elsewhere and not very interested in you? Or maybe he's passive and he's there if you want him, but fine if you don't. Contrary to views like that, Paul's view of God was always through the lens of what Christ had done for him. As one commentator puts it, Paul's understanding that Jesus, in his death, loved him, was now the controlling force in the apostle's life. How often do you set before yourself, in your mind, the fact that Jesus, that your God, loved you so much that he went to the cross to have you as his own? With that image set before us, we cannot begin to question how much God loves us. And with that sense of how much God loves us in front of us, of what he has done to make us his own, we cannot help but wanting to please him, wanting to love what he loves, to work for what he works for, to be a part of his reconciling the world to himself, to want to tell others of this incredible God and his incredible love. Yes, we should love our neighbors and share our faith because God calls us to it. But we do it better when we have a clear view of the one that we are proclaiming. Then we increasingly want others to know of him. But we also need to have a clear vision of how God relates to the world. And Paul gives that to us here. In verse 19, we see that Paul's vision of God's relationship to the world is one where God is giving himself in Christ to the work of reconciliation. God wants his creatures to be reconciled to him. He's given himself over to that work. It's what he desires, and we learn it's what he calls his people to as well. Now, Paul was an apostle, of course, and our calling is not identical to his. But God works through his whole church to reconcile the world to himself. And it's easy for us to see the world, and certainly some segments of the world, as hostile to our God and therefore hostile to us, because in fact they often are. But Paul sees God's response to that hostility and he sees it as God reaching out to the world in Christ and offering reconciliation. Do we see God that way? Our world right now and our culture right now is increasingly shaped by a vision that sees those who oppose us, in any setting really, as monsters that we need to destroy rather than opponents or even enemies who we need to seek reconciliation with. Each political movement in our country easily identifies those other people who must be stopped, who must be defeated. Cultural disputes are no longer matters for discussion or debate, but they're battles where each side tries to crush the other through the courts and the law. Meanwhile, on a global scale, Islamic terrorists see secular Westerners as enemies to be eliminated, while many secular Westerners see far too many Muslims in the same way. Now, my point is not to say there are no win-lose situations or to deny some of the realities of domestic politics or national security. But my point is that with all of these views around us, we're used to seeing our opponents in terms of containment or elimination 
rather than reconciliation. A different, maybe more strange way to think of it is that we're used to seeing our opponents sort of the way that you would see zombies. I don't know if you've ever seen a zombie movie, but you don't try to reconcile with the zombies. You don't try to win them over to your side. You can't cure them from their disease. All that you can do is contain them or eliminate them. But Paul says that how God relates to the world is different. He relates to it as a great physician relates to a deeply sick world. A hostile world to be sure, but one that he is seeking to cure. And he sees us as church, the institution he founded through his apostles, as his medical mission. A mission of goodwill to offer both reconciliation and healing through Christ. And Paul says that if we love our God, this is how we will relate to the world as well. We will get caught up in this ministry of God. If we devote ourselves to Christ, we will also devote ourselves to the life of those around us. Now, this doesn't mean that we become foolish. For one, it doesn't mean that we let down our guard. The world is a hostile place. That's why it needs reconciliation. And so, we must be careful. But we must step out nonetheless. God did. Paul did. How should we? This also doesn't mean that we spread the gospel in foolish or cookie-cutter ways. Paul in the book of Acts was careful and thoughtful and sensitive to every individual in how he shared the gospel. It was not a one-size-fits-all approach. He showed the love of God in a variety of ways depending on the need. He presented the gospel in a variety of ways depending on the people. But what should it look like for us? We can start thinking first, of course, about those who are close to us, of family, children, friends, fellow church members, asking how can we love them? How can we preach the gospel to them in word and deed? But then this also calls us beyond those safe circles. Jesus stepped out of his throne room. Paul stepped out of his safe Jewish world. Where might God be calling you to step out? Where might he be calling you to be an agent of reconciliation, a sort of ambassador for the gospel? Where might he be calling you to love your neighbor with a love that's motivated by your love for God? We take these callings one step at a time. They're not easy and we don't want to pursue them foolishly. But Paul reminds us of the inseparability of our love of God and our love for neighbors, both those near and far. Let us not therefore pursue the safe kind of love of neighbors that is pleasant and comfortable, but ultimately self-serving, and that refuses to direct our neighbor towards God. Let's also not follow the error of Paul's opponents and pursue a love for God that is separated from our love of neighbor, or one that only connects with those that we already like and feel safe around. Let us not pursue a love of God that's really just about self-comfort and self-improvement and that helps us just have the kind of life or family that we personally want. Such a love for God turns out shallow, and it collapses into a love of self. And so let us instead look to our Lord. Let us see his love for his world. Let us see the love that motivated him to die for us. Let us see his love that desires the reconciliation of the world to himself. Let us ask where we fit into that mission. Let us ask how we can likewise pursue the love of God on the one hand and the love of our neighbor with the other 
that the two might meet, thereby pointing upward to our God and away from ourselves. Amen.